Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, your host, and I'm super excited for this podcast because it's about none other than chess and data science. I've been looking forward to sharing this with you for a while because those of you who know a little bit about me know about my chess obsession, which started when I was very young. And what I'm most excited about is to have a fellow data scientist and chess aficionado as my guest on this episode. That is Neil Richards. He is a Tableau Zen master, which means, as most of you know, that he is an incredibly talented data visualist. I actually found Neil through Ali Torben, who you might know is the host of the Data Viz Today podcast. We niche data podcasters try to stay close and help each other out as much as possible. So thank you, Ali for sharing Neil's chess talent with me and sparking the inspiration for this episode. This episode is sponsored by my friends at CockroachDB. You'll hear a lot about them and some perks you can get as a Data Femme listener during our break. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. I want to thank you so much for being on DataFem this week. It's really exciting to talk about synergies between chess and data science um, with somebody else who does both. So I guess we can just start off with you telling me how you got into chess and how you got into data, just so we're informed on the same page. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, and thanks for asking me on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to ha have this conversation as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm not a young man, so how I got into chess was a long time ago, probably before I even knew what data was. I got into chess when I was about eight or nine. Um, my grandfather gave me a whole load of books. Obviously, this was pre-internet time. He just had book after book. Um, for, for studying and, and learning and, uh, and chess puzzles and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I dove into it um, hook, line and sinker. And I really started to get into, into chess that way. So we're talking sort of early 1980s back then. Um, in terms of how did I get into data? Well, you know, I'm, I tended to do math and the science. So data was never far away. I took a, a maths degree uh, and my first sort of career was very much it, it was data. It wasn't data science as you'd see it now, but it was sort of kind of very simple data crunching and uh, market research organizations. Um, and I found data science and specifically data visualization quite a lot later than that. So, yeah, I've probably been playing chess for 30 years more than I've been um, doing data sciencey things, but um, certainly it's fair to say that I enjoy them both. Same here. You read a lot of books, and I did too. I mean, I started playing chess when I was a really little girl, like 
three, four, and my dad would get me into it and stuff. And we would practice openings with these books. And it kind of taught me, I guess, that I love to learn, you know, because it was one of the first things I learned. Yeah, I think so. There was a real sort of um, learning path to it. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't have to be. There will always be um, people who can just sort of, who just get it. But um, essentially, if you want to, if you want to be good at chess, or if you want to improve, or if you want to understand, in most people's case, it's how to beat their friend who's good at it, or beat their uncle, or beat their mum, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you you can't just come back and expect to win. You have to practice. You have to learn. And and you know, back in my day, that meant either playing people a lot, or or reading books, or or both. For me, it was my real passion um, when I was a kid, uh, going up through when I was a teenager, and I also sort of played at university. Um, I more or less stopped then when um, sort of real life took over, but I sort of I, I never lost the interest and, and passion for it. And I, I play a, a bit more now, um, sort of back on some of the online sites. I play a lot with my, my nephew at the moment, um, who is getting better and better. And I'm not one of these uncles who lets his nephew win. As he gets better, he will beat me quite soon and eventually. And he will have, you know, he will have earned that and really sort of progressed through a journey. So I do enjoy um, playing him. I, I tend to find the puzzles on um, chess.com or on the app and do them sort of fairly religiously every day to sort of keep, keep my eye in, so to speak. Um, I would probably play more if I knew more people who played in this day and age, but um, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've never lost my, my interest in it and my, my love for it. Well, we can always play a game. I'm on chess.com too. I like the speed chess, the like five minute games. I have the premium account now. And so I kind of obsess over the opening scenario module. The game is over and you look at your stats, which I freaking love to do. Yeah. It'll tell you kind of recommended training and exercises. So I end up doing the puzzles that way a lot. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, to be honest, I just love doing the puzzles. There's, there's the, um, the, the competitive element of it. You know, you want to, you want your grading to be that bit higher than it was yesterday. But I, I kind of like the routine of it. I like maybe I don't know. Um, a few years back, people would do the crossword each morning over breakfast or whatever, or they would do um, uh, a Sudoku every morning on the train. If you're doing a puzzle, you know there's always an answer. There's one killer move there. Um, that will make you win. Whereas if you're playing somebody, that killer move might not be there. You might go through a whole game without knowing it, but you have to sort of kind of recognize that pattern or that opportunity when it does come. Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned to you ever, but I oscillate between playing those rapid five minute games with strangers, sometimes my dad, and then doing the New York Times crossword puzzles. So right. I'm always doing something. I could have a lot of anxiety, like I just have anxiety as a person. Those intellectual pursuits, like they're quiet intellectual pursuits, but they can really like help your brain out just to stay sharp, as you said, or like just combat negative feelings. There's so much crossover between these things as well. Um, like if you sort of consider sort of during the during the war, um, and we talk about the the, um, the the code breaking and the sort of famous um, story of the code breakers they had in to, to try and um, crack Enigma. Um, the they would basically hire people who were really good at um, solving crosswords because they were um, seen to be the future um, the 
the people who are going to be best at solving um, codes. And they would, they would take chess players too. Crossword solvers and chess players were, were very much sort of seen as having the same um, intellectual crossover. If you lean into the things that you already like, you know, those intellectual pursuits, music, art, chess, crosswords, you can find yourself in like the next new cutting edge field. I think that's one of the most empowering things that's ever happened to me because I was always the kid that, and I'm still, I'm still the kid, honestly, like that, that only wants to do what I want. And right. I'm very renegade on society. Like I have an MBA. Yes, I could go work for a big corporation. I could, I've had offers, but I just like to be like, do my own thing. You know, I like to do my own thing. And it's crazy that the things that I really truly enjoy have led me to a gold mine, which is data science. Yes. You mentioned wanting to know other people who play in this day of age. Do you have other data science colleagues who play that you know of? I yeah, I mean I I, I guess so. I mean, to be honest, my my main hobby turned into data science and data visualization. Um you know, but perhaps Earlier, I'm, my hobbies might have been, you know, online games or whatever I was into. But well, I wouldn't say it's not that different a skill set because the skill sets are, are so wide and there's so much variety into both of them. But um, you know, it's something it's something I do less as I've got into sort of learning data visualization, that kind of thing. But that said, you, you know, I would I would more than more than happily play. I did play. Um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this. I did play. Um, Andy Cockreep is very high up at, at Tableau. He he was looking for someone to play, and we had a, a couple of really interesting games. I am still a little bit sore about it because I was definitely better than him, but I just sort of made a slip at one point, and at that very point, he chose to um, show my position up on the keynote stage in Tableau conference when uh, Gary Kasparov was was talking, uh, and he he said to Gary Kasparov, "What should I do now to beat my friend Neil?" And Gary Kasparov just looked at it and instantly showed him the winning move. And I don't think Andy realized he was beating me at that point, but um, that was my my one brush with greatness was being um, <laughs> was being humiliated on on stage there. It's pretty amazing that Gary Kasparov, the grandmaster, was at Tableau conference. Why was he there? Well, yeah, it was amazing. Um, obviously, it was it was exciting for me. Um, he was he was keynoting. Um, the fascinating thing about Kasparov is that he had a, a lot of publicity around um, when he was playing Deep Blue. When I was growing up, um, it was just a fact: computers could not beat the best chess players, and they got better and they got better and they got closer and closer until finally there was a number of matches against um, Kasparov. Kasparov, as he's retired, has become very interested and very much a leading figure in uh, in the field of, of AI, how you can pit um, artificial intelligence against um, the human brain. So I, I love the fact that he, he embraced that. He embraced the fact that, yes, he was the best human in the world and invincible, but, you know, has, has now become a very important part of the history of, of, um, of AI. What you build and where it takes you shouldn't be limited by your database. CockroachDB, who sponsored this amazing episode, helps developers build and scale apps with fewer obstacles, more freedom, and greater efficiency. 
So you can forget about the database and trust that it just works. And trust me, I know these guys. They are awesome. It's Kubernetes-friendly, open source, and indestructible. CockroachDB makes it easier to build and scale apps across the world. It gives you the freedom to serve your customers absolutely anywhere. And it's backed by world-class documentation and dedicated support. I can't stress enough how much I'd love you guys to check out CockroachDB. Not only are they the most highly evolved distributed SQL database on the planet, they're long-term friends of mine, they're Kubernetes native as I mentioned, and they're built from the ground up to help companies of all sizes scale fast, survive anything, and thrive anywhere. Those of you who know me know that I will do just about anything to get a free t-shirt. All you have to do right now is sign up for a forever free database with Cockroach and get a free t-shirt at cockroachlabs.com slash datafem. I'll be putting that in the show notes as well. But before we go back to our show, I would really like to bring on Michael Austin, who is high up in the sales pipeline at Cockroach. She's also an avid chess fan, and she can tell you firsthand why Cockroach is so freaking awesome. I wish I got to play more during COVID, actually, but haven't had a set with me where I am. Um, So I started playing when I was like seven or eight, I want to say. I got a chess set as one of my Hanukkah presents and got very into it immediately, making my dad play with me like every single night for a while, whenever he could, so that I could learn all the rules and try to beat him. You know, that's so funny because my dad is the person who taught me when I was a little younger than that. But yeah, we we would play a lot and we still play a lot on chess.com. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you should make an account if you haven't. I should do that. Freaking love chess.com. I am a bit obsessed. Queen's Gambit definitely was really yes. fun to watch. Um, I do have someone here that I can play with in person, and I have another friend who I can. So that's always really fun. I mean, the nothing really beats the, you know, having a board, having a chess board that right in front of you. How did you find um, your position at Cockroach? I know you're more of a on the sales side, but did you do data science as well? No, actually. I Although I did a while ago take a coding bootcamp because when I was thinking about what I wanted next for my career, I knew that I wanted to go into technology sales. And I thought like, okay, how can I differentiate myself and best prepare and best market myself? And I thought at the time, you know, it would be great to do this, you know, while unemployed, this part-time coding bootcamp to at least be able to understand the, the like the framework or some of the the foundation of what backend systems are built on. And funny enough, during that time when we got to work on like a group project and there was someone who did like the backend, someone who did the front end, and someone who did the database, like I loved databases the most. And this was before I worked at Cockroach. But no one liked working on databases, at least in my coding bootcamp, and it was my favorite part. So at least when I was able to interview at Cockroach, I was able to say, oh, I actually learned Postgres in my coding bootcamp. So I don't know if it actually helps me sell it, but it was cool to be able to get that background um, before I then went into sales with it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to sell something if you don't have some knowledge about it. 
what does your sales job look like at Cockroach? Like, what are you trying to sell right now? And, you know, what is your, what does your job look like? Are you on the field? I mean, obviously before COVID, um, or who do you talk to? Yeah. So I, I get to work with all companies in the West with, um, in the commercial space and the growth space. So a lot of mid-market and startup companies, um, and, you know, with Silicon Valley, that's super exciting. I was in the field before COVID, um, but it's, you know, client facing, still doing a lot of prospecting, outbounding, and a lot of communication with customers to sell our company's main products, multiple, um, Cockroach DB, which one is self-hosted and they get to use the enterprise license and run it themselves. And the other is managed where we manage it for you. And it includes hardware and, you know, a, a, a team of SREs. Those are really the two uh, main products that we're selling. And it's all B2B. Is there anything that like an individual consumer could get from it? We do have an open source product. Many engineers are able to work on personal projects with CockroachDB and kick the tires and do it for like educational or academic purposes, which is great and part of what makes our product so cool being open source. Even I was able to follow the instructions and install CockroachDB on my just my machine and you can pull up um, in your terminal different tabs to simulate different nodes and you can like kill a node and see what happens with your data in the event of like a simulated outage. And it's pretty cool. It definitely sounds as such. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me to talk about new things going on at Cockroach and your involvement in chess. We will have to play a game sometime on chess.com. And now I'm going to take my lovely data firm audience back to our show. I think it's cool that data biz was your hobby, but you've turned it into a career. Do you want to tell me more about that? It feels like a lot of people start learning as a hobby and then realize they love it and make it into a career. So in my particular um, career path, if you like, I was introduced to Tableau, um, and that was back when it was doing really just um, quite quite um, tedious. I wouldn't even call it analysis with market research data. It was just presenting data in tabular formats. Um, then the clients could then take it and do something low tech and analyze, you know, it by themselves if they wanted. We were just we were just process data, and we were introduced to, to Tableau. And as soon as I went in and I saw the charts and the colors, and I was blown away by by you know by data visualization as a lot of people are. Um, and it didn't really work out for us in that particular use of that company, but it still gave me an outlet to, to have a look. And it sort of became the hobby when I realized that what this is, this is a BI tool. This is a BI tool, which extends on, on data science. It allows you to, to present your data analytically. It allows, um, you know, to use the tagline, it, it helps your client see and understand data. But I also started seeing what people were doing. I started seeing um, what Visit the Day was like. And I had um, coffee table books from Information is Beautiful and things like that. And, and I had sort of light bulb moments that said, well, I can use this at work. And what a great career that would be to be part of. But I can also do this. I can, I can use it in other ways. I can make data art with this. I can use this BI tool to do a lot of visual fun things 
using data. So I started to get quite creative with it as a hobby, if you like, but I was able to use this BI tool for much more uh, creative purposes. As we've discussed, I was the chess nerd growing up and I was the chess nerd because I couldn't draw, I couldn't paint, I couldn't do creative things. I could play music, but that's because I could logically follow notes and scripts and theory. I, I didn't have this sort of creative outlet. And suddenly um, data visualization was a, a creative outlet for me where I could use data you know, in order to do things a lot more creatively than I than I'd done before. I didn't know you were an artist. I make data art too, usually with R, just like art pieces. And I'm a musician as well. And so I think it's really interesting. We have all of that in common and it's just, you know, it's cool to think about like how creativity and that need to create something and be flexible factors into a scientific career like data science and also chess you can be creative in chess people say that there's like only a certain amount of moves but you can unleash that creativity in a confined space and really explore it i think you're right and i think um there's there's so many parallels um you in both chess and data science or data visualization you might initially think that the logical mind is going to work best the analytical mind and certainly for me being a mathematician first, I love doing stuff in Tableau and I love doing stuff that uses the maths that I know. I'm not scared of doing circles and trigonometry and stuff like that you use at school. Again, that's sort of going back to the to the stuff I love. And, you know, if that means um, I can figure out how to draw uh, a flower petal or something like that, then um, that's where the, the sort of analytical mind comes in. I think it's so important to have, whether it's in your team or, or whether it's the skills that you want, it's so important to um, to consider people who aren't just math nerds like me or who aren't just chess nerds, you know, analytical type people. It, to have that um, creative background, to have a liberal arts background, people who are going to be able to tell better stories, people who are going to be able to be more creative, people who are going to have um, better soft skills, if you like to use the term, when they're dealing with the clients and when they're understanding their requirements. If you look back at Queen's Gambit, um, we, we, we see the main character and she um, she learns from the caretaker and she, she studies the openings books that her, her friends give her. But ultimately, it's just it's a gift and a talent that she has, isn't it? And um, clearly, she's not your, your standard chess playing stereotype of the 60s and 70s. And yes, it takes a, a, an analytical mindset to do well, in many of these things, but I think there's a, these extra things that you can bring in, these extra skills or these extra talents. Um, that's what can really make the difference. It can make the difference in chess. It can make the difference in, in data science, data visualization, and in, in most things in life, really. Do you think that like chess has more in common with data visualization specifically because it is a very visual game? I tend to think of myself as having very poor um, spatial awareness. I, I think I'm very, is it left brain or right brain? I am very much the, the logical side of the brain. You know, I, I find it really difficult to do the right brain tests, like um, uh, like doing things in front of a mirror and sort of writing backwards, that kind of thing, all the things that test your spatial awareness. You know, maybe I've got to my chest level and my data visualization level in spite of that rather than um, because of that. In a lot of cases, pattern recognition comes into it. We've mentioned reading books, but by practice and more practice, and you keep playing good people until 
till you start to see the kind of things that they do against you and you start to you start to see um maybe how your pieces are arranged in a certain way and you might think ah now i remember that this is a, a good position to start making an attack or oh no i can't leave my my pieces that far apart because that that way my opponent will will um will attack them both at the same time that kind of thing so so many of these things come with um recognizing patterns and then maybe recognizing how you can get to that pattern from two or three moves prior to that all that kind of thing so i'm sure that when we talk about um data analysis and data visualization in particular i mean the, the art of a, of a good data visualization is to be able to to show the patterns in the data and to and to tell that story tell that story to your readers by visualizing the data and by putting those patterns up i, I think there must be there must be a very sort of similar if not skill set similar things going on we all talk about uh, when we talk about data visualization we talk about the sort of the cognitive loads and the and the things that you see precognitively first you know how you recognize differences in um in in lengths of bars or in um in, in spatial positions of, of different elements of your chart so um, i i would think that there must be a lot of that that you that you also go through as you're as you're learning and getting more and more experience in playing chess as well what made you choose uh visualization over another area of data science i know you kind of talked about how you got into it but um at least from my perspective i feel like visualization is a great way to get into data science just because it's nice to see that instant gratification well it's interesting and i can i can totally see the attraction in both um as i say i think you know it it was my entry in sort of through through picking up tableau and through learning to to create things and maybe as you say it's the um the satisfaction of creating something you you can if you're working with your data scientist and you have your data guys who have um done some uh, done some amazing logic and and, and coding and, and reshaping the data for you and getting it exactly right or there's just as much if not more problem solving um, satisfaction in, a, in an amazing data jo science job done but maybe i don't know maybe i just like taking that perfectly curated data and being the glory guy at the end being the guy who can then say there's your charts there's your story that's that's what we found in the data I, I i think it's i think it's nice to be able to to specialize um in the visualization rather than the the preparation and the data science side of things although i know so many um talented people who are equally good at, at, at both sides um i would i would never claim that that i am and i i have sort of focused mostly on the visualization and design side of things um, and i think i probably like the fact that that's actually less like my mathematical and chess playing background than you would think compared to the data science side of things yeah when i was in college my best friend in college was kind of ahead of me i guess in a certain way because he would always want to make friends with people based on common interests and i would make friends with people i don't even know how you know and i'd always be talking about emotions and feelings and all dramatic and he i i didn't really see how if you don't open yourself in that way how you can have a real friendship just talking about common interests but then now 10 years later more or less 
I gravitate towards people with similar interests because that's kind of how you weed people out. I mean, when you're older, you don't have time to just kind of hang out with everybody and you end up meeting people through doing the things that keep you sane and happy and healthy or work, you know, and it's really nice, I guess, for me to be able to talk to people like you who are at the top of their field in data science and like not just have to do one job for one company like I literally can float around and find everybody's stories and as a data scientist also I think it's really cool to be at that intersection and you know it just seems like art and chess and astrology which I did last week's podcast episode on it's just fun to talk about those side interests that we all kind of have as a community. Well, that's right. And I, I think, you know, much of the networking we spoke about is all due to the sort of um, the prevalence of, of social media, if you like. It makes it easier to, to decide um, who you want to network with and how. Um, certainly, if I talk about, I mean, you spoke about back when you were in college, you're, you're younger than I am. So if I talk about when I was in college, networking meant or meeting people and making friends, it meant you know, face to face and not necessarily through any um, common interests or career paths or anything like that. It would just be um, whatever whatever life throws at you, if you like. So um, I, I do think it's important to do that. And I think it's important just, just to have those extra um, Th those extra in interests because they give you sort of different um, thought processes or, or ways of approaching um, whatever your main job is. So when I do my, my data science, I probably approach it with the idea of trying to be more creative and, or trying to bring in ideas that I have from, um, uh, from external influences uh, and whether those external influences might be the same kind of mindset you have through playing chess or whether it's through um, your those who influence you in data visualization or, or what you see outside in, in nature, anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that's up to you, but it's important to have all these extra ways of thinking in order to just sort of broaden what you might um, want to do. It's interesting because you mentioned like studying books as a kid on chess and I did too. And it seems like that self-learning component of data science that everybody has to engage with. Even if you do end up learning on the job, you have to like take hours by yourself to learn the skills in your own way, even if you learn at school, you know? And so I'm wondering what you think about kind of different methods and ways of self-learning because for me, I never, I really never truly studied chess in the way, like maybe I did briefly when I was a kid and my dad had the books and it was just a fun thing. But like lately for the past several years, I've just kind of played a lot of games and felt my way around and gotten better that way. But that's right. It, it helps and it gives you a, a head start. And I think in terms of, in terms of the way you learn, I think obviously that's changed. So we mentioned that I had, um, I had all these books. The reason I had all these books is my grandfather, um, when he died, he he was a correspondence chess player. So you know, he, he lived in his his village in um, in rural England, but he would play a lot of simultaneous games by post. So you would um, you know you would write your move down, you would post it in a in an envelope. Um, it sounds so old fashioned now, 
Um, you know, I probably even have to explain what posting a letter is to some to some listeners. But anyway, you would you would post the move. Your opponent would then get it. It would take a day or so to think about it. You would write the move back, and the the games would go on for for months and months. But you would you know in order to do that, you would need the books. You would need to have all these thick reference books on openings and things like that to make sure you were um, putting yourself in the best position to continue on with the game. Because if you weren't doing that, your your opponent was. Um, now we might not all have these um, thick chess books and reference books to to learn from so much these days. But when I was playing my my nephew recently, he, he said up in the chat, he said, "Well, yeah, I I, I watched a, a YouTube video recently, and and it said to to do X Y Z, and it recommended that. So it's it's just a different um, media of of learning. Do you have a favorite opening that you normally do? I used to play something called the coal system, which is just like a really quiet, boring, um, closed queen pawn system. And I used to really enjoy that and sort of slowly but surely try and um, attack the king. Uh, didn't always work, but I used to like that. But I've probably tried most of them over the years. I always prefer the queen pawn to the king pawn. Yeah, that's awesome. I've really um, stuck on the ready opening where it's like your knight on yes. the right side. You know it, yeah. <laughs> the oh, right yeah. Yes. The on the right side goes out. Or my favorite, my favorite where I tend to win a lot is the English opening where the left side bishop pawn goes yes. forward. Um, and I just love that one. Like before I saw Queen's Gambit and studied, I pretty much only did like King's Pawn classic opening because that's what it always done. So it's really cool to find which ones work like the sicilian defense was such a theme in that show you know like it kept coming up sicilian play the sicilian the sicilian defense and like i looked that up on chess.com in the openings and now when anybody leads with their king pawn i usually will do the sicilian defense and that puts me in a really good position and then of course there are a million variations on the sicilian defense so it's just you can like literally go down the rabbit hole for so long <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like all these things in that um you know some openings are more popular and they're more popular because they're they're played more and they are probably better um, you know, like the Sicilian defense, but um, you can always uh, you can always surprise people with your the Reti or the English opening. And um, not surprisingly, I'm a fan of the English opening. I, I think it's um, uh, yeah, it can it can be quieter, but it can um, it, yeah, it can not confuse your opponent, but it just it can lead to a completely different game. Well, thank you, Neil, so much. This has been so fun. And it's been a real pleasure diving into the intricacies of chess with somebody who also has such a passion for data science. So I hope that we can do this again. And I'm sure we will in future Data Femme episodes and seasons. For all of you listening, if you want to challenge me to a game on chess.com, my handle is Nell Pyre. That is N-E-L-P-I-R-E. I would love to play at any time. And if you're looking for other ways to support this amazing content that I have for you, there's always Patreon. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash we have a few more episodes in season two to surprise you with, so definitely be excited for those. But if you know anybody 
or know any companies that are doing really cool epidemiology research in relation especially to the COVID vaccine or really anything about the virus, send them my way because season three is really going to dive into why this happened, how we move forward, how we can use data to move forward and make sure that a catastrophe of this level does not happen again. But for now, rest up, enjoy your week or weekend, and I will see you next episode.